Excellent. That's a really, really powerful, important point to understand. Wow. If you want to be open nature um, human being, you need to get into open nature to be that human being. That there's actually four qualities of right speech. But by and large, in our society, we give the child, every child, the idea. They all get the same message to one degree or another, and that is, quote, you're special. So, um, so my insight was, um, was that, uh, so yesterday I had kind of a dukkha filled day, um, where I just wasted the day, um, you know, reading news and articles and social media and this kind of thing for about the first two thirds of the day. And the final third, um, I spent reading, reading that, finishing that Tibetan book, which was very nice. And, and I also was very mindful while doing it and taking deep breaths and all of that. And so that was really quite nice. Um, but aside from that part of the day, it was kind of a dukkha day. And um, so today I thought about, I was writing in my journal this morning and I realized that the, um, that the reading of news and articles and this kind of thing is not actually the source of the dukkha. And keep in mind, this is a habit I've had for many years, and I'm very frustrated by the fact that I love to read this stuff so much. And um, I don't even love to do it. I just do it habitually. It's not a love because I actually don't like it, but I do it. <laughs> and anyway. That's a good insight. Thank you. That Here's is the a insight. very, very good insight. Think about that, because many people go around doing things, and when they're confronted, they say, I do it because I like to do it. And really, they do it out of habit. Yes, yes. And the deeper insight, though, even beyond that, but thank you. I, I didn't even realize that was a very good insight, so thank you. And it just came off the top of my head just right now, so that was a new one. <laughs> but, well, not entirely new, because I've tortured myself over this, so I've known that I haven't liked it. But it was nice to articulate it. But the other thing I was going to say, so I realized the problem wasn't the articles, just like the problem wasn't the cigar. The problem was the restlessness that led me to smoke the cigar and the craving. And that was one of my questions for you is the difference between restlessness and craving. And the same with the articles where, and the social media, where the problem isn't the social media. The problem isn't the articles. The problem is the restlessness that leads me to do that. It's me, you know, you know sitting on the toilet, deciding to pull out my phone and go on Facebook or something like that, or Twitter or whatever, you know, or deciding to, you know, just, you know, I'm having a nice peaceful moment just sitting there, and I decide to ruin it by seeing all the chaos on the news today, you know, and that is restlessness that is causing me to do that. So to realize the problem is actually the hindrance, not the behavior, that was really important for me to understand, and I had that insight today. Excellent. That's a really, really powerful, important point to understand. Wow. And that uh, as that as that insight grows and deepens, basically what we begin to understand is really the nature of suffering is the cause of suffering is not what is presented to us from the outside world. It's what we do with it inside of our own constructed yep. world 
absolutely 100 percent this is what people get from the understanding of the Paticca Samuppada and how the mind works. But even the beginning student has to understand that the second noble truth is making a very, very loud statement. When we say that a greed, ill will, and delusion is the source of all suffering, uh, we recognize then that um, have you ever heard of Flip Wilson? He was a comedian in the 1960s, and he had a um, he was a cross dresser and other things like that. By the way, he was one of the best black comedians, uh, and he was really part of big part of Hollywood. And one of the routines that he would do often, he would wind up with a very humorous statement of uh, the devil made me do it. Hmm. An example of that is he's he's dressed in a really, really frumpy woman's old dress walking down the street and he looks in the store, uh, the dress store, and then it cuts immediately after he walks into the dress store that he's walking out in a really, really fancy uh, slinky dress. And he winks and smiles and he says, the devil made me do it. <laughs> Go buy that dress, okay? This is exactly how we get the mentality is, is that we personify motivators with the idea that the devil made me do it, not uh, owning the fact that that devil is actually built right into the second noble truth. That's mm. the wanting things that we don't have. Or the devil also is uh, trying to get rid of things that we don't like. Mm. Okay, and so the devil made me do it is in the sense of uh, I was watching Fox News and the devil made me really angry. <laughs> I've heard that something like that before. Uh-huh. <laughs> when we recognize that media's job is to get people to become restless. Yep. That's their job. They want to get people upset and uptight. That's the whole point of it. This is why in media it's so well known with that one lead phrase. I mean, this tells the entire story of the entire industry. If it bleeds, it leads. Yep. That whole thing, okay? Even if it's a scientific paper. That yeah. scientific paper has to bleed somehow. It's got to have something juicy in it, or it's never going to find its way into a journal. It's got to have some interest, some curiosity. It's got to get people excited. Yes. Okay. It's got to get them moving. It's really, that's the impact people. That's the whole point. And what happens instead is that people become restless with that. I I have a really bad joke to make. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, you know, there's one person that won't get moving. What's that? Stephen Hawking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, because he has ALS, he like can't move. He 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 can travel faster than you can. He's got <laughs> wheels, man. <laughs> 
Yeah, he died a few years ago, so you really can't move now. But <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I just had to. Uh, I, I do. I, yep. I did hear that he had passed. I had forgotten about yep. that. Uh, so in any case, this um, let's look at restlessness as more of a residue. In the sense of you've heard of the uh, uh, Newton's second law of motion, right? That is known uh, in uh, Newton Newtonian physics as the law of inertia, and it can be stated as anything that is um, in a particular state tends to remain in that state. So if you start pushing a car and getting it to go uh, three or four miles an hour up to walking speed, if you stop pushing on that car, the car doesn't instantly stop. It continues to roll on for a while. Yes. Right? This is what we're meaning now is the inertia. Once we get um, an individual excited, that means that something is now moving and spinning inside. And that that moving and spinning then then can be referenced as that inertia or that um, uh, continuing to go along. And how you can see that physiologically is that if the if the brain has occasionally unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of fear, thoughts of anger, thoughts of uh, violence, thoughts of um, uh, uh, agitations, but only occasionally mixed even with wholesome thoughts. And that means that every occasionally th that unwholesome thought is going to be like having a drop of adrenaline, just a little bit of adrenaline put into the system. And then later, a little bit of adrenaline is put into the system, but the individual is still sitting at his desk. He is not weightlifting, running, fighting, or doing any activity that uh, would burn off or reconvert that um, adrenaline. And so uh, we can feel then that uh, that low-grade um, restlessness, boredom, anxiety, and stress are all related depending upon how much value, uh, how much adrenaline is in the system as well as um, how alert the individual is to that amount of adrenaline in the system. And so now we're beginning to wake up, we're beginning to pay attention to that stuff. And uh, pretty soon you'll begin to figure out which thoughts it is that get you to be uptight. As soon as you're uh, uh, recognized in any way, shape, or form that you've got a little bit restless or a little bit uptight and you notice that, then the first thing that you should start doing is the investigation. What were the immediate thoughts immediately before that? How is my posture? How is my breathing? And so we start into that investigation um, uh, with both the source of the anxiety as well as the playing with it. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, so back to the, the drop of anxiety that comes or adrenaline that comes. Um, let's say you're not 
you're, you're on guard maybe or whatever it is, and you can kind of keep those thoughts out. But when it comes to going out into the world and you come into direct contact with something that is going to remind you and, and make you want something, like let's say, let's say your problem is you really are attracted to cars and you really want a Lamborghini and every time you go outside your door, you live in an area where there's a bunch no, of Lamborghinis. No, I'd, I'd prefer a Maserati. <laughs> a what? A Maserati. Oh, I Maserati. Thought, I, thought, okay. I thought you liked the Rolls Royce. No, no, definitely not. But I's your own Tesla now. Uh, but I've always been a Mercedes man. <laughs> okay, Sean, couldn't you see Damarato roll up in a Rolls Royce? I can see him getting driven in one. <laughs> Can you can you see me on the back of a uh, uh, a Honda uh, Magna 900 cc? <laughs> no, <laughs> I know you've done that before, though. Uh, yeah, good. been there, yeah. done that. <laughs> but anyway, back to the Lamborghini. Or uh, yes, yeah, let's say you live across the street from a Mazda dealership. Okay. You got to go to work every morning. <laughs> so, so every morning you're just wanting that mazda each time you see it like how do you work with that like what what is your process do you go aha i see you mara and change the mind turn your head something like that what do you do um there are many many opportunities within that that you've given too much of a broad uh point um one thing is is that okay guess where my own personal private parking lot is it's across the street who are my best friends the guy who owns the the dealership (laughs) (laughs) okay so you find a way to get a mazda (laughs) (laughs) well um that would be what normal people would do if they uh, were dealing with their um, greed wholesomely because they're still thinking about um, it in a in a wholesome way. The other possibility is is that you break in and take the Maserati and go. Yeah, <laughs> that's about the worst possibility that you could do. Okay, mm-hmm. so. Um, there are many, what, many. What diff- even worse? I thought of the, <laughs> the mo- least wholesome of all. You burn down the dealership yeah. out of out of I hatred. Already of, I already <laughs> thought of that, but right, burn it down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So yes, but there's all kinds of unwholesome and wholesome different ways that we can deal with it. But the issue is, is that when we look at the car and see the car across the road in the showroom as they're coming out of the house, are you mindful enough to know how you feel? That's the whole point, is is that you can uh, like the Maserati a lot, but you don't have to want it. This is exactly back to the story that is so famous. This, I really like this story. This is a story about Achan Cha and Achan Semedo. And Achan Cha and Achan Semedo were uh, at a particular ceremony 
where I won't go into the details of it, but for some reason or another, uh, all of the young ladies in town are dressed to the nines. All right. Best makeup, best skimpy outfit, et cetera, like that. And uh, Achan Cha catches Achan Tomato. I think he was not a, uh, an Achan then. This is when Tomato was still a young monk. And uh, uh, Achan Cha saw that Achan Tomato uh, was looking at what was going on. So uh, he shoulders him or nudges him and he says, well, what do you think? What's going on? And Achan Tomato was wise at that point of contact. Because he answered Achan Shah, his teacher, I like it, but I don't want it. In other words, these young ladies who get themselves all dolled up, or these Maseratis get themselves all polished up and placed on the showroom floor to be as desire as possible, desirable as possible. You can like that beauty without desiring it. You can appreciate the Maserati, you can appreciate the uh, Lamborghini, you can appreciate the vehicle for what it is, but you don't want it anymore. How do you do that? By looking at how you feel when you see that car. Can you look at the car and feel good because you like the car, or do you look at the car and feel bad because you want the car? No. I, I have a story related to this. So, you know, I live in New York, right? And there are many very attractive women here, you know, all over the place, you know. It's and like a lot the of center. those kinds of cars, yeah. too. It's, yeah, it seems yeah, to be the whole capital of, of overly dressed women and overly expensive cars. <laughs> yes. You know, and and I remember, like, uh, when I first, my first, like, couple of years here, pretty much, it would drive me kind of crazy a little bit, you know, especially when I was going to school here, you know, because well, that's all the whole the, point of yeah. it, isn't it? <laughs> and, yeah. And um, and, you know, one they have they, the same message that the news has. They want to set you on fire. Sure, sure. They're ble- They're out there with all that makeup on bleeding. I mean, how red can the lips be? <laughs> sure. And so <laughs> when. <laughs> that's so, a good one. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> So uh, one, I gotta say though, with masks, you know that helps a little bit. <laughs> that helps a little bit. They already figured that out. In the I, 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 yeah. yeah, I was, I was wondering about that. I bet the dentists are not doing much business this year. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Nobody not cares anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what bad yeah. teeth? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, anywho, you know, one thing I found is, um, especially with my practice with yourself, Damarato, is, is just like you can notice it, you know, and maybe appreciate it for a moment, and then just take a deep breath, you know, and keep walking. You know, okay. and like, and like I have my dog, you know, he's very distracting. You know, he goes all over the place. He's a wonderful little uh, other thing to focus my attention on. You know. Um, I have the place I'm going to, you know, I can direct myself there. I could be listening to music, you know, and I breathing, I can focus on the breath. You know, there's plenty of other things to focus on that are much more wholesome that won't excite my craving, you know, which is, 
dissatisfying when the craving is excited. It's mm-hmm. like you feel like you're kind of, uh, it feels like, like to crave is to kind of feel like your whole body is stressed a little bit. Like there's mm-hmm. kind of a stressed feeling about it, like in the gut, you know, and uh, in the head. Exactly. And in the, If you want something you don't have, then that is a mental state of deprivation. You're missing something. You're not whole. You're not complete. We're longing for something. There is a hole inside. That's the whole idea about the emptiness. And then, in fact, that emptiness or that hole that's inside is very much related to that restlessness. Great. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned, you know, one wholesome way of dealing with craving might be to try and accomplish your goal. So, you know, there was a girl who used to live in my building, and she recently moved, and um, and I had kind of a crush on her, you know, and so whenever I'd see her, you know, just a, just kind of a little thing, you know, and, um, and uh, one day I asked her for her phone number, and I, it happened to be the day she was moving. And uh, I got it, and we went on a date, a nice date, you know. And so who knows if that'll continue. But um, but it was interesting because, um, you know, if you have a crush or something like that, that can also, you know, really activate your craving, you know. But even that with is that, the craving. It, I don't it get it. Craving. What do you mean, crush and craving? Me, <laughs> it is the craving. Yeah. There's a reason they call it a crush, right? Because it's kind of like you're being... Crushed because bit, if you know. she says no, you'll get crushed. That's <laughs> oh, there you go. That's actually better than what I thought. But, um, but uh, yeah. So and so the um, guy doesn't ask, and he just does all the crushing himself. Right, right, and you know, and uh, sometimes I think also it 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 can feel good to just try something. You know, but let's say it's a Mazda and you're nowhere near being able to afford one. You know, you can just take a deep breath and just continue on. And Have you, know, you been okay. shopping? Are you sure about that? No, because I I don't know anything about cars. I mean, I live in New York. You know, that's one reason I live here is to not have to drive anywhere. I, I hate driving. I don't like cars. You know, I just have want nothing to do with them. So I <laughs> So I live in a place where I need no cars. You know, that's one reason I, I, I'm here, you know, that's actually, you know, it's funny. I watched one of your videos with Nat, with Natalie on restlessness. When uh-huh. I had this insight, it really inspired me to see what you had to say about restlessness. So that one came up and um, and I really enjoyed that video. That was a great video. So thank you for that. Um, but uh, I, I recall her, three years ago. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it said two years, but two years, three years. Um but I, I recall her mentioning living in New York, and this actually is related to another point, you know, uh, in the Buddha Dasa book, in Anapanasati, a manual for serious beginners, he talks about how um, for, for the best practice, it's best to live in nature, in a natural environment, spend time in nature, which is where you're at, obviously. And for me, you know, and perhaps also Keishan, you know, um, I'm not, you know, in that environment. And I think that that uh, it would contribute more to my practice if I were. But one benefit to not having to do that is not having to deal with a car and all the dukkha involved in a car, which I'm very aware of for various reasons. But <laughs> but uh, but I got to say, to be in nature would be 
quite nice. I am curious to hear your thoughts on teaching city dwellers, you know, because Buddha Dasa is very specific. He says, you know, like you have to be in nature for this to work. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts that's, on that. Okay, that sounds like a completely different topic, but we can. It, it, um, it is. I, we, yeah, we, we could save that one for later if you want, but I, but yeah, or if you just wanted to answer quickly and curious to. Uh, well, let us say it, there's a lot of um, things about that. That that's actually the very first thing that Siddhartha Gautama did. She got out of the palace. But the next point on that is, is that in Thailand, traditionally over long centuries, and that this tradition could go way back even before the time when Buddhism came to Thailand, but it's been here for many hundreds of years, is, is that the Wats are of two types. There is the village Wat and then the forest Wat, and that they work together in teamwork so that monks will move back and forth between the city Wat and the forest Wat. A typical example would be that uh, the young man, for whatever reason, um, uh, influences from his family or whatever like that, will have a big ordination ceremony at the city Wat or the village Wat. He will settle in there. His family makes sure that everything is okay. And after two or three months or maybe a year or less, then he'll go to the forest Wat and he'll stay there for a long time. That we really do want to get that young man uh, when it's time, when the right time is there, is to get him away from his family and get him out into nature, out into the open, so that he can practice. Hmm. Um, that we don't want young monks to try to deal with the problems of the village, that we want old senior monks to do that. And so after the monks have had many years in the forest, then they can come back and deal with the city life very well. They have actually gone and lived in the forest long enough that the world has been taken out of them. So now they can come back to the Wat so that they can live in the world but still not be of the world. Hmm. Just like you could walk around New York City and not be attracted to it but the only way to have gotten out of your attractions to it is by gotten away from it for a while. Mm -hmm. This is always done in, um, uh, this is in fact the entire issue of seclusion. Mm. The entire issue of seclusion is based upon this of getting oneself away from it all. And we can see that that happens uh, in a variety of different circumstances in, uh, in the real world. Let me give you a few examples. That when someone uh, decides they're not going to drink anymore, they join AA. One of the things that AA points out is, is that this guy who's now decided to stop drinking, he's also got to stop going to the bar. Mm. He's also got to stop associating with those who do drink. Right. That's a huge Which part of it. And so that means now that he's going to associate with those who don't drink, and that's going to be his new mentality. Another example of that is when a, a young man either is drafted or joins the army, the first thing that happens to him is, is that he's taken out of his household and put into a barracks, and now he's a soldier 
24 hour seven. You can imagine that student that uh, young soldiers would not get the same kind of training if they were daytime soldiers. In other words, he gets up in the morning, he goes to boot camp until five in the afternoon, and then he's off from five and he goes home and stays with his mommy from 5 p.m. until 6 a.m. the next morning. That's not going to work. He's got to be in the military the whole time. We've got to get him out of his family and get him out of his old way of doing things. The same thing is done with uh, religious cults. The first thing the cult leader wants, if he's going to get in control over this uh, uh, new person in the cult, is to try to get them out of their old environment and let him become immersed into the cult. The same thing is true if you are around noble people, that nobleness will rub off on you. If you're around a bunch of crooks and thieves, then their thievery will rub off on you. This is the whole point then that the Buddha is making and Bhikkhu Buddha Das is making also. If you want to be open nature um, human being, you need to get into open nature to be that human being. And so this is the whole show about it is, is that our environment very much uh, influences uh, how we think Mm. and how we feel. And um, we can think of it magically in a kind of a way in the sense of uh, um, songs like good vibrations and negative vibrations and whatnot like that. Cities tend to be a place where a lot of unhappy people collect together in small little groups or big little groups or big, big groups. But all of that negative energy and negative feelings is spread around so that people, when they go to New York, the first time, the first thing that people feel is exhilarated and excited. Yep. But that city will also get people to feel depressed. Yep, because of all of the negative energy that's there. It's very interesting that it has those uh, influences because of all of that energy, all of that human mental thought process, all of the activities. An example would be that if you're on a walk in nature, then uh, you probably can find an old trail and uh, you can see at great distance, you can see the things around, not much is moving and you can take it all in. If you walk down the street and your typical street in New York, you are absolutely um, surrounded by a lot of uptight, anxious people. Right. And they will deal with you if you're in their way, uptight and anxious. That's exactly what Keyshawn is actually dealing with, is he's not dealing with his uptight and anxious, he's dealing with other people's uptight and anxious. And they're pointing at him. Well, in New York, people are going to be pointing their uptight and anxious at you on a regular basis. Are you going to buy that? Are you going to buy into it? No, No. I don't buy into that. Well, one of the ways of not buying into it is not having to even be around it. Right. Okay. so if you're watching television and you're watching Fox News or you're watching some news program that's absolutely telling a bunch of blatant lies and someone continues to listen to that stuff, then they will not only 
start to believe the lies, but they'll start to feel the way that the liars want you to feel. That's right. why they're telling those lies is because they want you to feel in a certain way. So if you listen to those lies, you're much more likely to feel the way that the liars want you to feel than if you're not listening to them at all. Right. And or the other part is, is that you're listening to them, but you're specifically listening to them with wisdom so that you can hear one lie after another after another. And pretty quickly you get really, <laughs> wait a minute, is there something else to do with this mind moment rather than listening to this kind of garbage? Sure. So one question I have. So there was one part in that video where Natalie asked about um, our hots associating with, you know, who do they like to associate with, basically. And you were just saying that they generally like to associate with other arhats. Um, is it arahat or arhat, by the way? It's arahat, right? We don't even know because the question you're asking is, how do you end a word in English when it has many different English endings in Pali? Okay, I'll just say arhat because I like how that sounds better. <laughs> it doesn't anyway. even matter. <laughs> anyway. So, um, so uh, when, when uh, discussing our hots um, and who they like to associate with, you made the point that that they generally like to associate with other noble people, um, or you know, just generally, you know, people that are you know going towards nobility, and they generally like to not be in areas that are completely devoid of it because some of that might rub off on them in a negative way. So, one question I had is isn't and maybe this is too esoteric of a question but isn't isn't enlightenment you know su supposed to be such that nothing could corrupt it right so you could be in our hot in hell you know and you know you'll just be fine you know just noble all the time right in the middle of hell you know the like, answer all of that is no okay uh, here's the problem that you're con first off, you're confusing the word enlightenment with the word nibbana. And nibbana is known as the unconditioned. And the Western mind will change that word from the proper use of it as unconditioned into the word of unconditionable. And everything is conditionable. That's the whole point is nothing but cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. But when something is in fact not conditioned, then what happens with it? It becomes conditioned. No, Eventually. if it is, well, either it becomes conditioned, but let us say that if you can... Um, Let's take a pie, a pizza pie. We're conditioning it when we're cooking it. We're conditioning it when we are making the dough, when we uh, flatten it out and twirl it in the air. We're conditioning it when we put pepperonis in it. We're conditioning when we put the cheese on it, and we're conditioning it when we put it into the hot oven. When we take it out of the oven, it's no longer being conditioned by the hot oven. What happens to the pizza when you take it out of the oven? What happens to it when it's no longer conditioned by the heat of the oven? Um, it cools. Aha, exactly. 
And exactly, it cools off. That's the point that we're making here, that when things are unconditioned, they cool off. When you stop pushing on things, they will eventually slow down and stop. Okay, every fire has a fuel. That's what we're talking about here. Every fire has a fuel. When something is hot, it's conditioned. And when you take the conditioning off of it, it naturally cools off. Hmm. Now, um, the Buddha did not have understandings uh, at the time. They just didn't have the science to understand uh, molecules and the, uh, that heat or energy is, is actually the motion of the molecules and the radiation of heat and all of that. He didn't understand it, but he did understand one thing, and that is you take a, a pizza out of the fire, it cools off. That's the whole teaching right there. Even though we don't need all of the modern medical science or um, physics and all of that from uh, today, we can use that stuff because it's real and we know it and that it all points in the same direction. The more we understand about physics, the more we understand the relationship between matter and energy. That matter, in fact, and energy are always in combination with each other in and right. the sense that a fire has to have a fuel so when we know that, that we can yeah. we can deal with it which means that we can take a, a fire and put it out simply by robbing it of its fuel so what about say like um a noble person in a very complex situation. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, King Ashok of India was probably noble, right? You know, but let's assume, you know, he, you know, he lived in a court, you know, he had many courtiers, you know, he probably, there was probably a lot of corruption because there always is in all the courts all over, you know, um, how could he have, by the way, sure. So how could he have retained his nobility? you know, amongst all of that. Moment by moment, remembering. Hmm. So, Just so what's happening it... right now, you see, you're looking at it as a great big pile of stuff, but it doesn't come in that way. Things don't come in in a great big pile. They come in one at a time in this mind moment, in this mind moment, in this mind moment. Sure, but your point was, was that if you were to take a noble and put them in a bad situation, you know, that would affect their How nobility. do you know that he is completely surrounded by ignobles? That doesn't sound like a noble thing for a noble ruler to do. Noble rulers would surround themselves with people who they trusted. Sure, which is true. I mean, it's funny because I was thinking of a, of a noble person that, that has a complex life like that. I have the Dalai Lama on, your, on my desk. So he's the first one that comes to mind. But then I thought, you know, he's probably surrounded by nobles. So I thought of someone else, you know, this mm -hmm. uh, mythical. How do, we, yeah. how do we know that uh, Ashok was noble? We don't, but there's indications that uh, uh, because of his largess, 
and because of the works that were done in his time and in his name, for instance, a lot of um, uh, pillars were put up. And these pillars often had the sayings or the teachings of the Buddha inscribed on them in stone. And, it's, and these pillars were uh, used for various things, including marking the boundary of uh, a soap. And that the modern um, uh, histories and uh, have done maps to show that uh, the Ahsok Empire actually was much larger than we originally thought. That it was uh, that he had actually uh, uh, part of the empire was all the way over to uh, Kerala, for instance. And all the way down to the area of Madras. So Tamil Nadu and that whole swath of area. This is part of the reasons why we understand Sanskrit to be as complicated as it is. And also the Pali is as complicated as it is, is because it's actually a combination of several different languages that are very close together. So that this sutta is in this dialect of Pali. And this sutta is in this dialect of Pali. But they're close enough to where you learn the Pali language, you get it. But this one uses this particular group of words and language, and this particular language uh, uh, group uses this words of, uh, of language. Like in some groups, they use the uh, the, the verb of uh, bhava a lot, and in other sutras they use hoti a lot, and so you could get the idea of where uh, these things come from. Uh, because it was in the time of Ahsoka when things were really collected together. So that's what we have. I could go into a lot of detail about it, including what his son did in Sri Lanka and all of that kind of stuff. But he sent emissaries. Uh, he sent logris. The, uh, the Buddhist community of monks grew vast during his time. Vast, something let us say that from before him, maybe 10,000 up to maybe 350,000 people were ordained during the Ashok uh, administration from, say, 310 BC up until about 250 BC. During that 50, 70 year period of time, Buddhism went whoop. Yep. Because of so, his. Uh, oh, wow. sorry. Go on. All right, so that's what we have yeah. about him. So, um, you know, it's funny. It was also this. a very benign yeah. time, too. It was very good. The, yeah. uh, there are a lot of indications that, in fact, that uh, Alexander the Great was stopped by a soak. Wow. When Alexander the Great, he just ran right through, he ran right over Egypt, he ran right over uh, Persia. He ran right over all the way to India, and he got stopped in India. And so he turned north and went up into Pakistan. What, what, what did he get stopped by, like their army? Yeah. Something bogged him down, so it, we don't know really what happened, but we do know that he left. He didn't stay in India. But we also know that there was a lot of residual stuff that was left. For instance, Greek art shows up in India at that time. And that we are uh, still in India are a lot of really old ancient statues that were done during the time of the Stoke. I mean, you go into the museums and they're just all over the place. But before the time of the soak, 
there were absolutely no statuary. That Buddhism was known by its Bodhi leaf, the um, uh, the Dhamma chakra wheel, and uh, a, an empty uh, a tree with a seed under it. So an empty tree with a seed under it, the Dhamma chakra, and the uh, Bodhi leaf were the symbols, just like in Islam. No pictorial of the dear leader. But in the time of, but during time of Greece, that's when all the statuary came in because all the artwork, the artisans were brought into India by Asok. And so there was a lot of stuff happening on that time. It's actually a very interesting period of time. That's 300 to 250 BC period of time. Interesting. Yeah, so, that sounds interesting. So uh, getting back to the, the nature point, and then I guess we can return to the restlessness after this, because I think it is connected, actually. Um, yes, they it, are. <laughs> yes. And so it's it's very nice. My mom has a house on Whidbey Island in Washington State, and um, she's currently staying with my grandmother in Seattle, and my grandmother's 91, and so my mom kind of you know, helps her out, kind of looks after her. She's very sharp, my grandmother still, but it's nice for her to have my mom there. And so my mom has her house there on Whidbey. And when COVID hit, so Whidbey Island, just a little more background there, very rural island. Um, you know, it's really... Islands uh, tend to be. Yes, it's, it's very, yeah, you know that <laughs> very well. So, um, you know... Well, there are like exceptions that. like Hong Kong and Singapore, but generally islands or, are... Uh, or Manhattan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Manhattan, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know... Um, and Whidbey is very, um, you know, pristine and, you know, there's there's water, mountains, beaches, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, deer, all this stuff. Pacific Northwest. Yeah, just gorgeous. And I went out there for four months when COVID hit because we didn't know what was going on with COVID. This is in, in April, you know, 2020. And so I just went there because, you know, I was I, I this wasn't the place to be <laughs> in New York. And so I went there for four months and it was so nice. You know, and so relaxing, you know, and I was totally secluded. You know, the closest store was a was a 1.7 mile walk and it was a little corner gas station store. The closest supermarket was seven miles away, you know, and um, and so I'm thinking of going back there, you know, um, just to, you know, spend some time and just chill, <laughs> you know. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if individuals, ordinary people, are uptight, uh, restless, and dealing with the world the way that people deal with the world, then you put a whole bunch of those people together in close quarters. That means that the atmosphere itself is basically being radiated with uh, things that are difficult for us to pick up, but we do pick up on them anyway. We can actually think of it just a pretty good idea because I was in uh, electronics and, and telecommunications and radio when I was a child. This kind of makes sense to me that uh, the number of radio and television stations in the United States bombard the air 
and that around cities, there's a whole lot more radio stations, a whole lot more television stations, a whole lot more electronic broadcasting, which is sending electromagnetic radiation into the atmosphere to where you're out in, on an island or someplace, though there are is technologies here, you don't have to put up with either the radiation from the media in the electronics, but you also don't have to put up with that mental radiation that humans are putting out because the, the brain is electromechanical device, electrochemical uh, uh, mechanical device, which means that we are in fact putting out radiation. And if the radio, if your vibes are uh, unwholesome and uh, it winds up being a very noisy environment, but we don't pick up on it as with our ears to hear it as noise. We pick up on it in the sense that the human body is kind of like an antenna. And if you're in a um, an example of that, uh, is be very very mindful about how you feel with your body and walk into a major airport. Especially when there's a lot of traffic going on. Let us say that there's 100 or maybe 500 people standing in line going through the um, uh, the TSA. That's when people are most up to uptight. Yep, yep. I, okay. I went, and you're yep. standing in line with a whole bunch of uptight people. Begin to notice how you feel and notice a lot of that comes from the people that you're around. Yes. Yes, this is also a reason to get away from that stuff is because it's just by itself unwholesome. It's very unwholesome for people to go into an airport. Yep. Totally. I, I yeah, I made the, you know, not too smart of decision to go into an airport after a ceremony one time and because I just had to fly back for work. And um, it was so it, it was just a terrible energy in there. But you know how mm -hmm. I responded to it? You know, at first it stressed me out. But then I started just sending love and kindness and praying for everyone in the airport. Gosh, what time. else is there to do? What else is there to do? <laughs> it, it, it made it so much better. You know? <laughs> right. So you do once so you recognize better. that you can yeah. either be affected by this stuff and let this stuff in. Or you can create your own world. Yes. You do not have to be invited to that. But this takes a while of moving in and out, going from seclusion to the world and from seclusion to the world until you begin to see what's going on with it. And then you recognize that getting away from the world is actually a very wholesome thing to do. To stay away from it all. Get out of yeah. it. And we have, and uh, and this is well known in our language. I mean, everybody knows this kind of stuff, but they don't know that there's an escape from it, but they do know that there is dukkha. I mean, everybody calls it a rat race, right? Right. Right. If it's called a rat race, which means the general population can see that living in a city turns one into a rat. Uh. Why? Because everybody else living in that city has already been turned into a rat. Huh. Right. And, you know, there there are temptations. And it's a really ratty life, if you say it that way. <laughs> yeah. Wow, oh, that's, a a, that's really 
compelling when you think about it because everybody else in there really does have that rat race mindset totally just living amongst a bunch of rats (laughs) no i'll 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 tell you this it's so funny so so rocky my dog my very cute dog has gotten me um as of today uh and it was as of yesterday it was five phone numbers four dates as of today i got my sixth phone number from rocky but you know four dates quite good and three of those well you've got a dog you're lovable yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's well known. <laughs> and, I mean, dating uh, manuals uh, talk about yeah. go get a dog. Yeah, and it's a little, and it's, a little <laughs> cute puppy, not a big, uh, ferocious uh, uh, master, right. right. but a little yeah. cute puppy dog will get you a phone number every time. <laughs> right, and what's funny is, is you know, three of those dates were business women, you know, and one was an artist. And she was an actress. And after I went on the date with the actress, I realized that I had generally been dating, you know, very career motivated women for a long time now, you know, my, you know, and it was so refreshing to go on a date with someone that wasn't motivated by that, you know, that just had this kind of love for more pure things like art and you know music and acting and literature and these types of things and i was like wow that's so refreshing you know because in the city although there are many to choose from all so many just are motivated by money and wanting to get ahead and do the american dream thing you know and all of this and i'm finding that that does not motivate me that much anymore you know i mean it's, it's somewhat motivating but but I don't feel that I'm residual that motivations, not new ones. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, and um, and so it's uh, it's interesting to find myself, you know, being turned off just by that whole mindset, you know, yet surrounded by it. <laughs> and okay. uh, yeah, well, let's go back and tie this stuff together, because Keyshawn yes. is in fact, he was right that this is all one topic anyway. It is. In the sense of restlessness is invited into the individual by living in the society. The society itself is restless. The people who join that society become individually restless. When they come out of the society, now they have to deal with the restlessness as restlessness because they can see it in a brand new way. Once they get that restlessness out of their system, they can go back into the world without having to pick up the restlessness again. But this generally takes some in and some out, back and forth, to be able to see that, for instance, right now, Keyshawn is recognizing, I think the the, the point today is, is just, just because the bosses are sending uptight emails doesn't mean he has to send back an uptight email. Right. Okay, that their restlessness is their restlessness, their uptightness is their uptightness, and they're trying to make him uptight because they're trying to get him to feel the way that he that they feel. Now, this is something really powerful because the boss, once he wanted the work done and it didn't get done, now the mentality has changed from I don't necessarily want the work done anymore 
Now I want to deal with my feelings. Because if I can deal with my feelings by making uh, Keyshawn feel really bad, that will make me feel better. This is exactly, I mean, why do people, why is it that misery loves company? Why is it that angry people want other people to be angry with them, along with them? Why is it that the barfly, when someone new walks into the bar, why is the barfly the one who are always asking him, come have a drink with me? Why do drunks want company. other people to drink? Why do angry people want other people to be angry? Why does misery love company? This is that whole issue then about why do uptight people, why do restless people spread their restlessness? And why are we susceptible? Because we've already been susceptible to it. We've already picked it up. Very, very few children are able to go from birth through diapers into knee pants, into school, into dressed up like a teenager on a date, and to not pick up all of that restlessness that society has. You see, because we pick it up ignorantly as children. Right. Now you're wise to it. Now you're wise to it, which means now when you see that stuff coming, you don't have to just let it hit you, wash all over you. You can stand aside. You can let other people's restlessness not affect you. Sure. Because you've learned to pull it out of your own mind. But we need that ability to go in and out of seclusion back and forth. This is exactly the whole issue of why do young monks go to stay in the forest temple for a long time to get mommy out of the system. That's why. Sure. You get so, the restlessness of the, the society and the city what, you see. And once the monk has the restlessness and the city what out of his system while he's been in the forest what for so long, then he can come back to the city what and deal with the population there in a very noble, wholesome way because he's been practicing it. And if he starts getting um, affected, by the problems of the towns, then he can just go to another what? He can go back to the, the forest or he can go someplace else. This is one of the reasons why the monks are really so mobile. The monks are mobile because they have the ability to just, you know, uh, let us say that the monk gets involved with a great, great big scandal here. And the people are in that what? They live in that city, they live in there, and so they have to deal with that scandal. The monk who was in that scandal just happens to be all he's over here now. He went to Chicago. I have seen that actually happened. In fact, I know that there was a monk who was a very well uh, known monk, got into a big mess in Chicago. And what was his answer to that? The way that they always monks answer that he wound up in Charlotte. And when name, things happened at the Charlotte Watt, guess what? He wound up in another Watt. Huh? Was his, was his name Damarato? No, no, I'm thinking about <laughs> something that was completely different. No, in fact, I never did have to leave a Watt because I was involved with... Uh, I'm uh, kidding, I'm just poking fun, you know. <laughs> but that's the way out of it. If you do get yourself involved with stuff, the way to, uh, is, is that you leave. 
you get out of it. You go someplace else. And within the Sangha, we've always got another temple, another wad, another place to go. And we don't have to go back and deal with the old problems. So basically, if the monk has a bad, uh, let us say, temple abbot, that's hard on him and, and is uh, writing him demanding emails. Why didn't you uh, uh, chant to that old woman last week or something like that? The answer to that is I'm in New Jersey now. <laughs> Are you talking about me? <laughs> no, I'm not because you're not in that situation yet. What I mean by that is you're not in that mindset of what? Me have me worry. I can walk. <laughs> right. That's the um, here's an example of that. You've heard the expression. When the tough get go, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Yep. You've heard that, right? There's an alternate to it, and that is, is that when the going gets tough, the bard go drinking. But in our context, when the going gets tough, the Buddha takes a hike. Mm. When the going gets tough, just walk away, get absent. (laughs) That's the right solution in all cases. I mean, even if you're in an argument with someone, the best way out of the argument is to say, wait a minute, I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> and they just walk right out the back door. <laughs> so, um, I didn't say where I had to go to the bathroom. I know a little bathroom is very nice in Timbuk too. <laughs> when I get back, we'll finish this conversation. <laughs> so, so to bring it back to the restlessness, or I guess we kind of already are back there in a sense. Uh, you know, um, you know where where does restlessness generally come from? You know, and, and also, how would you distinguish between Fear. restlessness and craving? Okay, uh, that's that's very good to hear because um, I've I've also been associating restlessness with fear as mm-hmm. well. And think about you know, it like this: uh, that a dog is um, able to lay down. The, there was actually a, a story about this in the in the in the suttas. This is one of the teachings of a dog. The Buddha actually used dogs as teaching tools. I'm looking for mine people, right now to see if I can bring him over. I, I'm you listening. don't have to do that. It's okay. okay. We know you've got one. He's all right. Yeah. So in Wherever this case. This particular dog, unlike all the other dogs, most dogs, when they lay down, they can just lay down. Maybe they they bite a little bit and then they'll lay back down. But this particular dog would lay down. And then he'd get up and he would walk around the little hole that he had dug for himself uh, in the dirt. He would walk around and then he'd lay back down in the same hole. And then he'd pick up and walk around it again. And he would circle around and walk around and then he would lay down in the same hole again. This dog was actually representing restlessness and the Buddha pointed that out, is is that the human mind can't just sit down and rest. It keeps standing back up and circling around and then sitting back down and then standing up again and circling around 
And this is what we do with our mind over and over and over again is, is that um, and the reason for it is, is because where the dog, where the mind rests is not really a restful place. That the thoughts that we um, allow ourselves to have are not actually restful. They're agitating thoughts. They're restlessness thoughts. Thoughts that, that agitate us. And because these kind of thoughts agitate us, we can call them unwholesome thoughts. That thoughts of restlessness or thoughts of work to be done will give us the feeling that some work needs to be done. And we'll feel an, an unsettled feeling inside. All of this needs to be done. And then the thought will come, the unwholesome thought that's been trained into us all of this time. Oh, if you go do that job, then you'll feel better. And people then will go do the job. And while they're doing the job, their mind is uh, on that job. But when they finish the job, and come back to sit down in order to feel better, guess what? The anxiety is back again. Because they're not monitoring and they've gotten themselves back into unwholesome thoughts again. And so the, the, uh, the agitation and the worry will, in fact, the worry itself is the unwholesome thoughts. That if, in fact, we do just simply stop worrying, just don't worry about it which means get it out of the mind, put your mind on something that is worth thinking about, something wholesome, something valuable, something like, oh, those bosses, they're going to be okay. Everything is all right. They've already gotten what they needed. That's the way to think about it. Rather, oh, no, he's going to send me another email complaining. No, don't worry about that. All he's doing is just trying to express how bad he feels because he's trying to get you to feel bad also. This is, and that's exactly what Fox News does. That's, the, their, that's their business model. But that's also the same model for uh, MSNBC. They just happen to have a slightly different audience they're trying to upset. They have to be a little bit more sophisticated about it because the people who watch NBC can think a little bit where the people who watch Fox don't think at all. If they did think, they'd think to turn it off. <laughs> but in any yeah, case, yeah. we're talking about the fact that both in MSNBC and you can throw in CNN and all the others, if they don't report the news, then nobody's going to watch them. And that's their whole business. I mean, in fact, if people really, really wanted to have a good news newspaper, they just simply stop publishing newspapers. We don't need them. The use for newspapers is that everybody stays uptight, upset, unhappy, and, and willing to go to battle, willing to go to war when there's nothing to fight over. And people collect together in masses like cities in order to have their battles. But people who live on the island, they don't have any problems to worry about. There's a little song I used to sing. Uh, the words of it are, hi, diddle de dee the island life for me. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice song. laughs> yeah, 
to get away from it all in that regard is is good knowing that that restlessness that uptightness is in the general society everybody has it if you are going to work on getting rid of it out of your own system then you need to do that in seclusion tell you what they just uh came out on the news about how they're uh lifting a lot of the covid restrictions if you have the vaccine so it's about that time we're getting there right well it's funny because you know the city has so many you you know there's a part of me that also truly loves the city you know just all the different things to do all the people to meet you know and all the different activities and all the, all the trouble to make and, all the trouble to get into yeah i know yeah. that i've been <laughs> in cities before i know yeah. cities yeah the, yeah there's there's something you, you know, by the way you you yeah. think that uh, um uh, new york is exciting you come spend a couple of years at bangkok yeah bangkok. listen I, I've been one there. night yeah. in bangkok will make a hard man humble that's the name of the song by the way <laughs> 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 That's funny. No, I, I've had some great nights in Bangkok. I've been to Bangkok. It's a, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite the city. It's a very interesting city. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd oh love yes, to go cities back. do yeah. have their appeal, but they also have their dangers. Yes. And that's what the real teaching of the Buddha is all about. Is yes, we do recognize that everyone does what they do because they see gratification in doing it. But once we see both the gratification and the danger, now we can start making a cost-benefit analysis. Is the danger higher than the gratification or is the cost uh, so high that the benefit uh, is drowned out? Once we see before, we only saw the gratification and we weren't looking at the dangers. Now that we can see the dangers, we can do that cost-benefit analysis. This is what the Buddha talks about is investigation and discernment so that we can see what is wholesome and what is unwholesome so that we can then begin to collect to and remain with the wholesome and begin to shun the unwholesome. And the better we get at that, then uh, the less we let things affect us. And in all cases, the whole thing that I'm talking about here is, is I'm not ordering anyone or even suggesting anyone move out of the city or the town or wherever they live and go someplace else to chase a rainbow. That you can find seclusion right where you are. Both of you, in fact, are you're living in Chicago, you're living in New York, but more or less, you're secluded from New York and Chicago. And right now, we're talking about Dhamma. This is a very wholesome thing to do. So you don't have to leave the city, but you can find seclusion within that city. It, just because you aren't living in New York uh, doesn't mean that you have to be out on the street double dipping in New Yorkness all day. Sure. You can find seclusion. You can get away from it all. You can recognize that you don't have to deal with um, the restlessness in the minds of others, that you can, in fact, get away from it all so that you can deal with the restlessness that you've already picked up from them. Sure. 
And it, it does feel exhausting, you know, dealing with that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. No, you can get away from it. I mean, you don't have yeah. to. Once you get into the room that you're in right now, you don't have to let the rest of New York crowd in on you. Right. And it, it is one nice thing about having the dog is people are generally very nice to to my dog and by extension me as well. You know, like when I meet people on the street, they, they love my dog, you know, and then they're they're nice to me as well. You know, and so I've had many very wholesome interactions, you know, since I got my dog. Whereas when I don't go out with my dog, I'm just one of the masses, you know, and it's just the typical New York, I'm walking this way, you're walking this way, you know, you you, you barely glance at each other, this whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But with the dog, it's like, oh, what a cute dog, you know, how nice is it? They stop to pet the dog, you know, the whole... Not everyone does this, of course. I wouldn't get anywhere if that happened, but but enough people to substantially change my whole experience. Yeah, you know, you're, you, you by yeah. having the dog out on the street are actually bringing a little bit of joy to people. That's quite wholesome. It does. It does. Believe it me, New York joy. needs yeah. more puppies on the street. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, I'll tell you this though: um, COVID has caused a lot of people to get puppies. Um, so there, there's a lot more than there used to be. So that's been a nice there development. Are a, yeah. There are going to be a lot of really little subtle changes that this whole um, time of COVID has made. Um, it's going to change the traffic patterns. It's going to change how people take vacations. It's going to influence the places people go for vacations. It's going to have effects on working hours. It's going to have effects upon which which companies uh, rent out what office space. That in fact, right now in New York, there is a lot of empty office space. There is. It's a huge crisis. Yep. I wouldn't call it a crisis. The people who don't like the fact that there's a lot of empty office space, they don't like it, so they call it a crisis. Well, I call it a I, really good thing. <laughs> well, the well, the problem with it is uh, the lack of tax revenue, you know, for the city. Right. So, so, right. so then they can't offer services, you know. So they have to cut all these services if they can't get the tax revenue. So it could be a really big. That's because they're all crisis. in New Jersey. Uh, the people sitting at home. The, the people, right? Well, at uh, least I don't know about uh, everybody, but a whole lot yeah. of people like like Willie. He's 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 working from home. Yeah, and I mean, many and, right. Well, many went to Florida. I know a number of people that did that. You know, many went. Uh, you know, uh, went. It looks uh, like New York Texas, lost what five you know, or six to... seats. New yeah, York yeah. State lost five or six seats. That shows that people are really leaving the place. People and are that's... leaving. People are leaving and. And it's it's really dangerous for the, the budget here, you know, because it was already, you know, kind of a blown budget before the pandemic. And now they lost so much tax revenue. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to the subway system. You know, like the, the feds had to bail out the subway system. Um, the Federal Reserve bailed out the subway system. That's how bad it got, you know. Mm-hmm. So who knows what's gonna, like they have all these like city health clinics and. City education, like all these things that help people. Well, the you know, good point is, like is that New York doesn't yeah. need to build any more subways now, do they? 
but they don't. No. Just two years ago, that was a major yeah. planning expedition. Of, we need more subways. We need more subway. Now they don't need them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They built the Second Avenue subway. It took like forever, and they finally built it. And I, I never see anyone there. You know, whenever I take it, it's like a. Not, it's very nice, but it's not crowded at all. You know, it was kind of a waste of money. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. But but back to, um, you know, the restlessness and all of this. Um, you know, it's funny because even just that little digression into the city politics and this kind of thing, which would be a news item, even that I noticed started to stress me out a little bit. You know, just talking about that, you know, just a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And, right. This is yeah. why the Buddha would recommend that uh, unless there's Dhamma in it, to not talk about frivolous things. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're talking right now about um, right speech, that there's actually four qualities of right speech. One is, is that we don't tell deliberate lies, that we tell we speak the truth. The next one is, is that we don't speak in harsh language uh, and harshness. You see, in in English and in the United States, there's had so much uh, political stuff about what is harsh language that we think that certain words are forbidden and therefore any use of those kind of words are harsh. That um, uh, George Garland had a routine about the famous seven words. Right, he can right. say them really, you know, like shit, fuck, fish, you know, he can just rattle them right off, uh, making it funny. So when we're talking about harshness, we're not talking about the language that we use because you can uh, tell a joke and the joke is even funnier because you're using these forbidden words as part of the joke. That's sure. not the same as harsh. Harsh language is when you're actually being harsh to someone. For instance, the kind of emails that um, uh, Keyshawn was talking about, that his bosses were behaving harshly with him. You can see the harshness of the language rather than pleasing and soothing language. Um, And so the next one then is uh, a big issue, and that is uh, gossip. Malicious gossip it means like the three of us are talking about another student or another meditation teacher or uh, even a politician. If the idea is, is that, oh, we are good and that politician is bad, that would be uh, gossip. Always the, the, the keynote for the gossip has to do with is person A talking about person C to Mr. B. So we have the first, that, and third person. So when the first person is telling the second person about the third person, that third person, um, excuse me, the first person is talking to the second person about the third person with the idea of breaking up or separating the second and the third person. In other words, Eric Byrne actually uh, referred to it as games people play, and one of them uh, that they play with that uh, kind of language is let's you and him fight. Let's you and him fight. You and he go fight. (laughs) Right? Mm. So 
Uh, this is malicious gossip, and uh, uh, the, it's a very big important point about monks that when two monks are talking about a third monk, it's for that third monk's benefit. That's the whole point of it, is so that we don't have harsh language or we're not actually out there putting down, let us say, other meditation teachers because they don't teach to the standards that we've got. You know, that would be uh, gossip. That would be harsh or um, not necessarily harsh, but it would be malicious gossip saying, oh, don't go listen to that teacher. Because, in fact, that teacher may have some really good things to say. Right. But it's only about out of my own conceit. How dare you go listen to him when you could be listening to me? You right. can see the, the crap yeah. in there. OK, so now we've got that whole idea about malicious gossip. But then there is this fourth one, which is the one that you were just talking about. If we just start talking about ain't it awful about New York. Without mindfulness, we're going to start winding up complaining to each other about New York and feeling bad about New York. And the two of us have a pity party about New York and how bad it is. Is that wholesome? No, 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 that's not wholesome at all. So if we are going to be talking about the restlessness that you have by being around New Yorkers, let's talk about it from the perspective of how you can be free from that. The way that you're free from that is by getting away from it all for a while and then be uh, completely free of it. And then when you go back into it, you have to be really mindful to not let it seep back in. In other words, we have not only to, to do the drying out process, we've got to do some waterproofing also. And so if we're not doing the correct waterproofing, then you and I can talk about cabbages and kings and elephants and seeding wax, and I think there's a point about it, you know. Whatever we wind up talking about, if we wind up talking about it and one of us in the group feels bad because of this conversation, that's clearly not wholesome talk. It's frivolous. It's of no real value. So these are the four kinds of thought, uh, four kinds of speech that a noble would be mindful of when he's having it. Not to put people down or to talk about they're doing it wrongly or whatever like that without making sure that the whole point of this conversation is not to talk about how bad they are, but rather what benefit can we get by understanding that so that we don't go into that place. So we have to make sure that we're feeling wholesome. So congratulations for, uh, for recognizing that while you're sitting there talking to about New York, you begin to feel like New York. <laughs> Right, right. Congratulations. That's good. That's exactly what we need to do Thank is you. to have that kind of mindfulness to recognize that we even just talk about New York and you begin to feel like New York. Right, right, totally. And you know, it's funny. Um, you know, there was uh, there's a way in which often people will take negativity to be a part of their personality. You know. And unwholesomeness as being like the personality aspect. And this is something I've reflected on a little bit. You know, uh, Dan Ingram made the comment once that there's a way in which you don't do the Dhamma and the Dhamma does you. 
So you're not doing the Dhamma. The Dhamma is doing you. And I found that to be the case, you know, that there's a way in which, you know, as you, you know, purge the unwholesome and become more and more wholesome, think about the Dhamma more and more, study it more and more, mm-hmm. there's a sense in which you're kind of losing your old individuality. Absolutely. And, and there's a sense in which, you know, there's part part of us that doesn't like that, you know, because it's habitual. We're habituated to our individuality. There's a part of us that takes pride in our individuality. You know, like I am proud. We were taught to be, that from childhood. Yes. We yes. have been taught many. Uh, there's different ways that it happens within society, and you could say that it, mothers have individual differences. But by and large, in our society, we give the child, every child, the idea, or the idea. And uh, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic strata the family or the child is in, they all get the same message to one degree or another, and that is, quote, you're special. You're an important special child. Which basically means, hey, man, it's your fault and you got to buck up. But we tell it in the sense of, oh, you're special. No child left behind. Right. But what this is, is that's the bait and switch It's part of the bait and switch. But we buy it. We buy into it and think that all my individuality and my specialness is worth something to me, is worth, because I've been trained that it's supposed to be uh, special. But um, it's really, (laughs) it's got a barb in the sense that uh, if you are special and you live up to that specialness, then you've got a lot of work to do. And if you don't live up to that specialness, now you're a failure. Those are your two choices. Right? You either got to work really hard and get no reward, or you could just not work and be a failure. And so th- this is actually when you, you're using the word individuality, but we could also use the word personality. And that this is the whole quality of what is that first fetter. That first fetter is when people think, I am, or when they think of it, I'm an individual, or when they think of it as I'm special, or I've got a job to do, or I have a place in society, or I am destined to become king, or any of that kind of stuff is the kind of thinking that goes along with this idea of uh, I'm special here. And that is fraught with danger when we recognize that, in fact, that personality that was trained in specialness actually is a conglomerate of stuff that's constantly changing. An example of that would be that this beer is very special. It just came out of the fridge. It's been on cold ice. I pop up uh, the top and take that first sip. And that beer tastes really good. 
Then I sit that beer down and let it sit there and age for maybe a month or two or three or four. And then I take and drink that beer. How's it going to taste? Is it going to be that same beer, cold, brand new, fresh, still effervescent? Or is it going to have mold and other things in it? Okay, so this is the idea that people get the idea that their personality is always fresh, just like it came out of the refrigerator and you pop it up and here I am, right? (laughs) No, the personality that we have actually is much more like that beer that's been sitting out for too long. (laughs) Now, it's aged in the sense that we thought that who I am is who I am. The Popeye song. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I am Popeye the Sailor Man. Boop, boop, you've heard that, right? That's the song that we always sing in the sense that it's okay that I am a mess because this is who I am, and I am special. Right. And along with that comes I am permanent. I am this personality. And the major teaching of the Buddha, the very, very first fetter that has to be eliminated is this fetter of personality in the sense of I am this or I am that and that I uh, am that way permanently. That we have to see that the personality or my identity is subject to change. Not only is it subject to change, it does change. It's in constant flux, it's in constant motion. And the best part about it is, is that if we start dealing with these changes wholesomely, then the personality will change in wholesome ways. This is so anti everything that's set up in our society. Our society is saying, oh, it's not you that's going to change, but you'll be a whole lot happier if you have that Lamborghini. The Lamborghini is what's going to make you special. Right. So it's funny on that topic. I found, you know, I see a therapist, right? And I found, and I've seen my therapist for about seven years. You know, it's been a long time. And I found that the past few weeks, like today and last week, and possibly also the previous week, but definitely the the most recent two sessions, that I haven't felt I have much to talk with him about, you know? Like, you know, this happened and that happened, you know, and it was all fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, I have no complaints, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, whatever. And it's been very interesting um, because I, I also like haven't been that tied into my personal narrative either. You know, it's like uh, you just. I just feel I'm letting all of that go, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's, a, it's very liberating. And it's also a bit scary because it's like, well, this is what I've held on to for so long, but it's a bunch of crap. So why should I want to hold on to that? You know, but exactly there's also, so. yes. And, but at the same time, there's this sense of like, you know, cause we're always, we're taught, you know, in Western society that all of your things that, um, you know, all of your things that make you different are what make you special, you know, and it's great to be an interesting person, you know, and 
you know, they're, you're, they're you're repeating it. Yeah, you've that. got even better language than I do. Right. Yeah. Um, um, but every every child is taught to be special, which means now you've got to live up to that, which means also that we um, we like doing that because we are uh, not shirking our responsibility that some people this is important in the sense of and I talked to some students about this that we have to actually in some for some reason or whatever that we need to have permission to be happy. Yep. Why is that? Well, the reason for it is is because always before now the the happiness was dependent it was dependent upon you doing what you were told to do. And if you don't do what you're told to do, how could you possibly be happy? All right, so this is the, this is the whole thing. So and uh, so we we continue to do what we're told to do. We go along to get along because we see the dangers in not doing it. And we see the gratifications in going along to get along. But once we begin to really wake up, then we can see the dangers also in going along to getting along. And now we can deal things wisely that we don't have to just merely go along to get along, that we could get along really well without going along. Thank you. We don't have to go along with the crowd. We don't have to go along with society. We don't have to go along with the restlessness and the agitation. We don't have to go along with the boss's uptightness just because he's uptight doesn't mean that you have to be uptight. But this takes wisdom because with the instincts are to feel the way that the people around us are feeling. This is the this is the herding instinct or the nesting instinct. If you're going to be in this herd, you got to go with the herd. And if this herd is New York, then this herd is restless. Yep. And so you got to go along with the herd and every one of us little children, we hop right on that. Yes, I'll feel the way that I'm supposed to feel, sir. And we do it, but we do it out of ignorance. Now we're beginning to investigate. Now we're beginning to wake up. Now we're beginning to get wise to that stuff so that we can see that what we thought was the right thing to do to go along to get along. Now we can see that this is dangerous. It is dangerous to get all wrapped up and uh, uh, uptight and anxious and uh, restless just because everybody else around me is restless. So, I think that we pretty well covered this particular topic. We've covered actually the relationship between seclusion and mass restlessness to get away from it all. So that we can really begin to see the restlessness that we have already picked up. Right. You know, it's funny. I so at the ceremony over the weekend, I shared a quote from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa at the end of the end of the ceremony. I think I'd like to share it with you guys. It's okay. from you. It's from the heartwood of the Bodhi tree, um, mm-hmm. which I started reading. Um, that's a good one as well. Um, I'll bring it up here. How empty of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, oh, oops. All right, let's see here. Okay, here it is. 
Um, Buddha Dasa, oh wait, yeah. Buddha Dasa's concept of nature as Dhamma challenges conventional attitudes and actions regarding the care of the earth. Buddha Dasa's perception of the liberating power of nature as Dhamma inspired him to found Swan Mok as a center for teaching and practice in Chaya, southern Thailand. For Buddha Dasa, the natural surroundings of his forest monastery were nothing less than a medium for personal transformation. Here's where the quote starts. Trees, rocks, sand, even dirt and insects can speak. This doesn't mean, as some people believe, that, that they are spirits or gods. Rather, if we reside in nature near trees and rocks, we'll discover feelings and thoughts arising that are truly out of the ordinary. At first, we'll feel a sense of peace and quiet that may eventually move beyond that feeling to a transcendence of self. The deep sense of calm that nature provides through separation from the troubles and anxieties that plague us in the day-to-day -day world serves to protect the heart and mind. Indeed, the lessons nature teaches us leads to a new birth beyond the suffering that comes from attachment to self. Trees and rocks, then, can talk to us. They help us understand what it means to cool down from the heat of our confusion, despair, anxiety, and suffering. For Buddha Dasa, it is only by being in nature that the trees, rocks, earth, sand, animals, birds, and insects can teach us the lesson of forgetting the self, being at one with the Dhamma. Destruction of nature, then, implies the destruction of the Dhamma. The destruction of the Dhamma is the destruction of our humanity. Wow. I don't think that I ever remember reading that. But whatever it was that I got from Bhikkhu Buddha Doctor sure rubbed off. That <laughs> 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 I'm actually living what you guys, what you just read there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, you know, this concept, nature as Dhamma, um, is something I think is worth exploring perhaps in a future conversation. But I think it's very interesting, and I would love to hear more about this. I don't know if you have maybe just a, a short little thing. It is no, I think that we yeah. we. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. One second. I said um, I think it'd be bit. Hold on, I think it's my headphones. Okay. I'm talking. Can you hear me? I'm talking. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me? <laughs> Hey guys, can you hear me? Yep. Yes, I can okay. hear you. My headphones are not connecting for some reason. Um, nice. But um, yeah, this concept of nature as Dhamma is something I would really like to explore more. Okay. We can um, do that again sometime. Like I said, that this, this is getting old, uh, going <laughs> for a while. Okay. Um, Sure. And and so I think that we pretty well covered the topic about, about how uh, the world invites us to be restless. And that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa right there is talking about it in the sense of getting away from the day-to-day -day restlessness of the world so that you can get out of that personality that you have in that restless world. Sure. sure. Totally. So... I guess uh, dealing I with restlessness. Go ahead, Keyshawn. Sorry, one one last question here before I hop off, just because I feel like uh, I, I don't want to go along with, uh, or you know, I see that going along with with whatever it is that they want you to go along with is not a good idea. It's it's inviting you into the suffering, as you said. Um, and 
I mean, like, you know, the response that I got that we talked about earlier on from from the message that I sent was just my boss, like, asking, like, what, like, with the question mark. So just inviting me more so to, to, to probably, I don't know, start a little pity party around it. But um, I don't I, I just look at it and I wonder, you know, I don't even know, I don't even know how to, um, I'm just not sure about, like, how to, like, sort of, play like their game at the same time while trying to maintain my own uh happiness around it like do you just like pretend or do you like you know what what do you do i don't know well first off we have to understand that we're not going to solve their problems for the long term in a in a short conversation between the two of us that all we can work with is how you can deal with your mind. Okay, that's the important thing is for you to recognize that just because they get uptight and restless, even if they're uptight and restless over something that you've done wrong, doesn't mean that you have to be uptight and restless also. And that if you deal with them with friendship, they will respond to that better, especially that if you argue with them. So above all, don't argue with them. But the right way to do it is, uh, uh, in, in fact, the easy thing to do is thank you for pointing that out. Thank you for pointing that out. I'll be sure to pay uh, close attention to that next time. That's really what they want to hear. Yeah. Okay. But don't worry about what they're going to be saying to you next, because you don't know what they're going to be saying to you next. Wait until they say it, and then you know what they say, and then you'll know how to respond, because you'll have a choice to responding joyfully and happily, if you can remember to be joyful and happy. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're worried about what they'll say. You're not being joyful and happy when you're worried about what they're saying are going to say you're not joyful and happy you're trying to you're in fact dealing with a fear of something that does not exist right in this present moment he has not sent you an email yet well he did but yeah oh and you have to answer to it no (laughs) okay all right he just said he just said what but you know i uh I said he just said what to my response, like when I said, you know, thanks for your concern, and you know, I was slow getting it out, but you know, it's been sent, it's been provided. All right, and and he sent a one-word email, and the email is what with a question mark. Yeah. Oh, that was a very strange <laughs> response. Um. <laughs> I would say that you don't have to respond to that. <laughs> that or or you can uh, if you do respond, you can respond with the question uh, uh, please be more specific. Or if you actually know and he knows and you know that he knows and you both know that uh, you both know 
what he is asking when he asks the word what. If it's really clear, and you know that it's clear to him and to you, then you can answer that what. But if you're not sure about what the question is, then you can ask for clarification on that without feeling bad. Yeah. Remember that they're not your enemies. They need you. Who's the boss here of your life? I think we went over this last time. I am. All right. And who's going to be the boss of the emails you write? Me. All right. So now that we know that, where's your confidence? You can do this. It doesn't matter what he does. You can handle it perfectly well because he still needs you. Yeah. Here's the thing. If he told you to do something and you didn't do it exactly the way he wanted it, or you didn't do it in the time that he wanted it, what are his options to that? To fire you, and then he has nobody to yell at, and the job <laughs> then doesn't get done? Yeah. <laughs> that would be tough for them, I think. Right, so that's probably not going to happen, especially now the likelihood of you getting fired is if you actually do something that is going to, you know, directly tick them off. It's like if you send a retaliatory email uh, uh, that shows anger on your part, that will have a good reason for them to want to take action. But if you're always giving them happy thoughts, thank you very much. I'm glad that we got that finished. And those kind of thoughts, then it will be over immediately. So maybe the right answer to that question, that's a full email. The full email is only one question, uh, and that is what with a question mark. The answer to that would be, uh, well, aren't you glad that we got all of that taken care of? Just then that's the whole email. Aren't you glad we got that taken care of? I really appreciate your help. Thanks. And send that email. <laughs> because that kind of question is an emotional question. He's not actually asking for information. He's trying to express how bad he feels. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if he was asking a logical question, he would have been more specific, you know? Uh-huh. But because he asked an emotional question, you got thrown. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the question, Keyshawn, who's the boss here? Hey. Mm. <laughs> who's the emperor of Keyshawn's pile of dirt? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Ah, all right. So you take your power. Okay. You do not have to be that victim that's under the thumb of a bad manager. That's not who you are. You are what you want to be. You don't exist. Right. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's not so much we don't exist as that it's completely malleable. 
and it is temporary. It comes up and it goes away, and it comes. Anything that's temporary is is obviously malleable. The whole issue about the problem with the with the uh, the Buddhist concept of self and no self is going against the religious mentality of an eternal soul. And people who have the concept of an eternal soul have a whole lot of trouble making changes because they don't think they can. And this is what gives rise to religions that say that uh, good, who is who do you think you are being good? Only God is good, right? That's the kind of mentality. So that kind of thing then seeps into the business world and the and the uh, the then the bosses will write emails that have that implica- implicated right there in the email. Who do you think you are? Good. Only I am good. I'm the boss here. <laughs> You're supposed to be the weakling, the underdog, the nothing, right? And you don't have to buy into that. You're your own boss. You don't have to have him as a boss. And so this idea of, of, of self, we have to understand that whether the self exists in this moment or not, whatever it is, it can change. It is not a permanent thing. That's the most important thing about the teaching of the Buddha. That's why that's the first fetter. If we don't get the idea that we can change, then there's no reason to practice any meditation because you can't change. And a whole lot of religions are saying that you can't change. Another example of that is the Lamborghini Manufacturing and Sales Force have the implication you can't change. You cannot feel like a Maserati owner without the Maserati. You cannot feel the way that a Lamborghini will make you feel on your own, you've got to have a Lamborghini to feel like that. And the answer is, oh, no, I can feel Lamborghini all I want to, and I don't need a Lamborghini to feel Lamborghini. (laughs) I've got control of my own feelings, thank you very much. I don't have to feel the way that the government or the business or the the religion wants me to feel. That's great. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, any of you guys, well, I think it's time to hit the hay, at least for me. Ah, me too. All right. So, <laughs> we'll, we'll catch this later. Glad to see hey. you both. I really enjoy these calls. Likewise, me too. Always great. Thank you, Don Rod. I really appreciate it. Hey, Excellent. So see, you, see you later, guys. Sure. See you later.